when God doesn't seem to be doing anything. James 5, 7 to 12, we already read it, so I'm not going to read it again right at this point. We're going to spend two weeks on this uh, meaty text. The last half of chapter 4, if you've been with us through this whole series, it can be depressing reading. Uh, The first verse of that fourth chapter, it introduces this topic of quarrels and fights among these Christians. And the whole chapter tells of abusers and abused. They were living, chapter 4, verse 4, like adulteresses. That's the degree of unfaithfulness God felt they were manifesting toward him. And the hurting people, the victims... Those abused by those with power and wealth, they did what any hurting people would ever do. They, 5-4, cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. And now the teaching of today's text, it starts to sort of shine with a little more relevance. What do you do when you cry out to the Lord in your trouble and nothing happens? Have you ever cried out to the Lord and your trouble didn't go away? Has that ever happened to you? James is a realist. He's given everything from exhortation to instruction to warning in this letter. And now he's starting to wrap up as he gets to the fifth chapter. And in the remainder of the letter, he's going to deal with seasons when you don't see God working. You're hurting. Maybe like these people in the text, you've been mistreated. You're crying out to the Lord of hosts, but none of the Lord's hosts are showing up and helping you. That's 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 of chapter 5. That's the first thing he's going to talk about. Then he's going to talk about the prayer life of the church. That's 13 through 20. We won't get to that this morning. And there's a reason James starts to close off his letter with these two issues. Crying out to the Lord and he doesn't seem to be doing anything. And then the prayer life of the church in 13 to 20. There's a reason he closes with those two issues. Right away I'm taught two things. First, uh, not everything will happen as quickly as I think it should in terms of God's manifesting his presence and power in my life in this fallen world. And second, I do not have the strength in and of myself to be all that Jesus wants me to be, and so prayer. It takes more than willpower, it takes prayer. But, but even that is not all James wants to say about the need for prayer. He's going to say something we aren't expecting about prayer. He's going to say it takes more than just my private prayer to make my walk with God all that he wants it to be. It takes praying together. Prayer one for another. This is is not the kind of praying we used to sing about. I come to the garden alone. It's not that kind of prayer. This is the two or three agreeing together kind of praying that Jesus talked about. All right, let's get into it. Life lesson number one. Because God loves us greatly, 
He desires to gift us with patience, but he can't do that quickly. James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Okay, so there's how long this patience is going to be needed. If Jesus has come back, you don't need the patience. If he hasn't come back yet, patience until the coming of the Lord. Then this example. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Probably we shouldn't be surprised James uses that as an example. No doubt he remembered Brother Jesus comparing the growth of the fruit of the Word in our lives with a farmer sowing seed. Almost nothing grows immediately. Seeds begin the process of growth imperceptibly, for sure, just as soon as they're put into ground, technically. You can't pinpoint any single moment when absolutely nothing is beginning in that process of germination, but you can't identify the exact beginning of it either. It's kind of like watching the hour hand on the clock. Digital clocks have sort of taken that all away. You can know for certain that it moved halfway around the clock's face over the course of an afternoon. And you do know for sure that it is moving all the time, but you can't see any one moment when it actually begins that journey around the face of the clock. James isn't just giving a lesson in agriculture. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Sometimes, James says, life is like that. It's like that for you and it's like that for me. We go through times when you rack your brains looking for something to do to change things. You rack your brain looking for something to do to fix things. You torment yourself trying to make something happen. Or, or you look to see where something has happened in the way of improvement. But, but there's nothing you can put your finger on. What can I do? Those words launch dozens of painful conversations if you're a pastor. You hear them all the time. So-and-so is treating me cruelly. My husband says he's leaving. My son doesn't want to follow Jesus anymore. I'm afraid I have a deadly disease. There has to be something to do with these things. Many times there is. James is going to write about the awesome power of diligent, earnest prayer. We'll get to these words. 15 and 16 of chapter 5. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. He is, if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Yeah, yeah, James knows about the power of prayer. It's easy to forget, isn't it? This apostle James who says how 
See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. It's easy to forget James walked and ate with Jesus. James saw Jesus multiply loaves and fishes and feed 5,000 people. James saw Jesus heal lepers. James saw Jesus raise the dead. Not always. That's what makes James such an important book. It's very down-to-earth, very pastoral, very real. The workers, you get into four and then move into five chapters. The workers are getting ripped off at the beginning of the chapter. And then in chapter five, they aren't getting the miracles they want as they cry out to the Lord. But those praying for healing at the end of chapter five, a lot of them are getting healed. Is that the whole story? Is, is there anything happening for those being persecuted unjustly, crying out to the Lord and not receiving deliverance? Are they getting anything as they, like a farmer, they watch the surface of the soil to see anything at all beginning to sprout? What about these people? What do they get? What is James thinking as he writes about them being like farmers, waiting for a crop to grow. Be patient, 5-7, till the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. That's the second time. Until it receives the early and late rains. If, if they can move their thoughts into the future, and if they can anchor them more in the coming of the Lord than the pressure of the present circumstances, if they can do that, they will grow the fruit of patience. And if there's some unspoken objection coming to mind, if there's something rising right now in your own heart that says, big deal, patience, I'd ra- I'm sorry, I'd rather have door number two, please. Then you need to think again. Because patience doesn't just teach us to pass time. James and Jesus both say patience grows fruit. Maybe you remember these words from Jesus. Luke 8, 14 and 15, And as for what fell among the thorns... This is the seed now, landing among thorns. They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares of riches and the pleasures of life. These are problems. And here's the thing. There's not a person in this room who is naturally inclined to think either of those things are problematic. They're wonderful. And their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, and if you've read this parable all your life, you kind of just think, there, the good soil, that's, that's the trick. The good soil, those are the good people, the church people, the righteous people, the people that hear God's word and do it. Bang, stuff's going to happen in their life. What makes this soil good? Well, they are those who, hearing the word, look at this. 
Hold it fast. What's that mean? In an honest and good heart, and look at this, bear fruit with... What makes this good soil good? This is what makes it good. That's what makes it good. Consider this because it's so easily missed in today's church. You may be able to get answers without patience. But apparently answers aren't the full package. God wants to give me more than answers. He wants to grow fruit. Growing fruit is not the same as getting answers. Growing fruit is not the same as getting answers. Say that with me. Growing fruit is not the same as getting answers. I know. Well, okay, Pastor Don, really? I'm not a glutton. I'm pretty happy with just answers. God isn't. God isn't. God loves you so much, and he loves me so much, he wants not only to make my life more pleasant, but to make my soul stronger. O thou who changest not, abide with me. Life lesson number two. The value of patience is the power it carries to teach us what to live for. Verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Why establish hearts? For coming of the Lord is at hand. So just because times seem discouraging doesn't mean they have to be fruitless. Patience has power to change you before God works in your circumstances. It has power to change you before God changes your circumstances. And then, some things won't be solved until Jesus comes again. Beware of people in the body of Christ, particularly certain wings of the charismatic movement that want to try and offer you all the blessings of the resurrected eternal life right here. You don't get it all right here, right now. And you're not promised it all right now. Some things won't be solved until Jesus comes again. And that's not due to some weakness in either the power and plan or plan of God. No, it, it seems to be the way he often delays in solving some of our biggest problems so he can produce something deeper than our comfort. If you doubt this, if you doubt this, think of, think of the foundation upon which our faith is established just for a minute. Just stop for a minute and think about the ways in which God has always done his greatest work in this world. Minutes after our first human parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, God promised a deliverer. Promise came almost immediately. The deliverer came 
thousands of years later. Then Jesus came. The Word became flesh. When he finally did come, he lived on earth for a total of about 33 years, give or take, depending on which scholars you read. I'm not quibbling. For the first 30 of those years, none but a few of his closest family members had any idea that this was God the Son. For the first 30 of those years, not one miracle never lifted a finger to heal or save anybody. It's only after those long 30 years were finished that there's any serious revelation of who he was and why he came. Since he died and rose again, he's ascended into glory, and according to the Scriptures, he's been given a name that is above every name. But over 2,000 years later, we still live in a world racked with rebellion to our ascended Lord. People mock his name, and it's a world full of bruised and broken souls. Nothing seems all that different. What is going on here? Why does God do things like this? He loves patience. Here's why Jesus hasn't swept all rebellion and wickedness and idolatry from the face of the earth. He is mighty enough to do it in a heartbeat. Here's why he hasn't returned. He's not willing that any should perish. Here's why we still wait. Jesus wants not only to come again in power, but to wean our hearts from the false joys of this world before he comes. That's how he gets us ready for heaven. This is the only way our hearts can be trained in holiness and devotion to Jesus before he comes and forces all of our enemies under his feet. Jesus wants us to willingly deny them before he openly defeats them. Did you get that? Jesus wants us to willingly deny them before he openly defeats them. Because that proves our love. How else could he do it? The waiting isn't an accident. It isn't an afterthought. Waiting for Jesus' return is actually presented in the New Testament as the definition of genuine conversion. I've got to hurry. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Paul's praising this church. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his Son from heaven. What do Christians do? They wait for his Son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You also, here it is, this sounds like James, doesn't it? Be patient. Establish your hearts. What wonderful words. For, here it is again, the coming of the Lord is at hand. So here's the coming. There it is there, and there it is there. Isn't that nice and neat? Three times. What do Christians do? They wait for the coming of the Lord. 
They think about the coming of the Lord. They plan for the coming of the Lord. That is the longing true conversion generates. And I fear, I made, that was just a little, I mean, it was a a little comment about the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. And I noticed there was no Lord descending. I do have a deep inward fear that we're veering off track in much of the contemporary church. I've been thinking lately of some profound words from Millard Erickson. He wrote a book, Where is Theology Going? Remember, this is 1994. It's been around a while. Let me read you this. It's a little bit of a long quote. Just listen. And what he's doing is he's talking about the major areas of Christian belief and how he thinks they're affected with the passing of time, okay? Where is theology going is the title of the book. Now, these are his words I read. In the area of Christology, the doctrine of Christ, we can expect the uniqueness of Jesus to receive less and less emphasis. There will be a growing accent upon his humanity, and his unusual characteristics will come to be seen as very much like those of other outstanding leaders and teachers. In the area of humanity, doctrine of man, humanity will be understood increasingly in natural categories and hence as having great affinity with the other members of creation. People are pets too. I'm sorry, it just drives me nuts when people come with their puppy and say, look at my baby, and I go, that's not a baby! Okay, it's a dog! I'm glad you love your dog. It's not a person. It never will be a person. Enjoy your pets. (laughs) But do you hear what he's saying there? It's profound. Humanity will be understood increasingly in natural categories, and hence as having great affinity with the other members of creation. That's perceptive insight. The value of the human race will not be seen as conferred from above by a God who has made us in his own image and likeness, but coming from below, human beings being the highest product of some form of evolutionary process. That's where puppies are people. That's where that comes from. Sin. The doctrine of sin. Sin will increasingly be social and psychological rather than religious. It will be thought of less as violating God's law or falling short of his standard for us and more as a matter of failure to live up to one's potential. The whole idea of actual guilt will increasingly be displaced by feelings of emptiness and estrangement doctrine of salvation. Salvation will, accordingly, be thought of less as a supernatural, otherworldly matter, and more in terms of adjustment, self-understanding. The struggle to achieve wholeness will replace the pursuit of holiness. Evangelism. Evangelism will lose ground to personal counseling and social protest and action. Further, salvation will not be viewed as restricted to those within the church or those with a conscious and explicit faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
other world religions will be seen as leading to the same goal, and all persons of goodwill who are noble in their concerns and actions will be thought of as brothers and sisters. 1994, he says, here's what's coming, and, and, and it's just hitting it right on the head. Eschatology to the second coming, and this relates now to we're people who wait for the coming of the Lord, okay? Eschatology will increasingly lose its futuristic, otherworldly character. The present and earthly dimension of the kingdom of God will be emphasized more than the future spiritual aspect. This emphasis, the emphasis that the kingdom will be introduced by the supernatural, personal coming of Christ will yield to the idea that it can be brought about by human endeavors. Bingo. Then Erickson says, we conclude with an observation on a practical level. Given the shifts in doctrinal emphasis I have just mentioned, preaching will be more horizontal than vertical. It will be more geared to meeting human needs and comforting human hurts in the here and now than to glorifying God and declaring his expectations and the promises of God to us. Remember verse 8. I'm going to wrap up. You also be patient. Aren't these wonderful words? Establish your hearts. That's what I want for this church. Establish your hearts. Coming of the Lord is at hand. Waiting isn't easy. The Apostle Peter tells us that many religious people, he writes to the church, many religious people will actually turn into mockers while waiting for Jesus to return. I want to do a series on atheists are made, not born, somewhere down the road before Jesus comes back. People turn into mockers, doubters. That's, that's what happens if we wait impatiently. That's what happens when we allow doubts and frustrations to replace hope and love. No wonder, James says, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Feed your waiting. Feed anything that teaches you to think about the coming of Jesus. Don't grow slack in nourishing your patience, your waiting for the Lord. Consider deeply the way everything else grows weak. Consider the way everything else fails with the passing of time. Look at the emptiness of all this world's objects of devotion. Waiting can be powerful for your faith. Jesus is coming again. Can I just... Oh, man. That clock. I don't know if it's a friend or my worst enemy up there. And so we're all waiting and hoping, you know, we're hoping that they'll find Bob's body. Just for the closure. Just for the... Will they? Well, that, that's... Greeny and I prayed that he'd be found alive, that he'd be safe. 
We're praying that they find the body. I, I don't... What if they don't? I'll tell you what if they don't. And this is, this is where this text from James just bites into life. What if they don't? Here's what will happen. And this is not hearsay. This is right in God's word in Revelation 20. Jesus is going to come back and it says, and the sea will give up their dead. You ever think about, you watch these old documentaries on World War II and, and, and they have these old grainy black and white clips. I don't know who took them. And you see these great big battleships all over the place going down to the bottom of the ocean. They never found all those people. Some, I'm sure, were believers. What about them? Truth be told, life moves on. It's years and years ago. There's, I wasn't around. And, and, and I don't even think about them. I'll tell you something. God has not forgotten one of them. And the sea will give up its dead. And every person will stand before Christ. Establish your hearts. Think about the coming of the Lord. Live life big. Everyone said? Let's pray.